Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. I had these leases on Wall Street in Madison Square Park. Any other restaurateur is like, or not restaurateur, but even like cart person, they're like, why aren't you like trying to do salads and bowls and stuff later? It's like, because then I would get really bad at breakfast tacos. <laughs> and yeah, so striving for excellence by remaining focused is definitely been a challenge and our goal throughout all this. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. What's the first thing you do when you want to open your own restaurant? Liz Solomon wanted to open a restaurant, but she went about it in a completely innovative way. In today's conversation, Liz takes us on her path to a brick and mortar restaurant that began with an idea, then a catering company, then food carts, then a wholesale company, and then, well, I guess you'll just have to listen to find out. definitely starts in Austin because I mean that's where I grew up on breakfast tacos so if I fail to mention that I mean that was a huge part of it the deeper path I guess I always knew I wanted to work in advertising so I moved to New York to do that I started my career here I loved it but I knew even like in my entry-level position that I didn't want to do it the rest of my life I didn't know what I wanted to do (laughs) It's not like, you know, the memes that you see that it's like people are always unsatisfied with their jobs and like, I'm looking to be fulfilled. It wasn't that existential. It was just like, when I'm 55, do I want to be still like taking client calls and yada, yada. And I was like, no, but I like this right now. It's good money. I'm good at it. I'll continue and I'll kind of know when the crossroads comes. I always kind of visualize like a train, like when you're on a train. Or movies, sorry. No, I've never been jumping off of a train. <laughs> movies. <laughs> in movies, they're like jumping between train cars. And I always sure. kind of like would visualize that. It's like I would know the moment to jump off the train car. And before there was like a name for this kind of thing, I guess manifestation. I don't didn't I don't think I manifested it, but it's like I was just like, trust the process, keep going. And so I kept working in advertising. And the last job that I was in, when I took it, I knew, I said, this is either my train car moment or I'm going to be on the train forever. And it was my train car moment. (laughs) And it was, there were a few things going on in my life personally and professionally that made it that I was like, this is the time to jump off and try to make this business idea happen. A big part of it was obviously my dad, who the company is named for. His nickname among friends was King David. I think most like big guys named David are probably called King David, but he was definitely a boisterous, vibrant personality, really strong presence in our community and in my life, obviously. And he had been diagnosed with, at the time, some kind of dementia. They don't know what it is until after autopsy, honestly, usually. But it had been, at this point, it was like 13 or 14 years into that diagnosis and seeing someone 
get taken down by something like that for so long, just really kind of instilled the fear of God into me, not in the religious sense, but like, I was like, you don't know what's going to happen in your life. And do I want to be 50 and get a diagnosis like that and be upset that I didn't take a bigger risk, upset that I didn't fulfill some of the things I wanted to try. Plus, you know, job dissatisfaction, all of it converged. And I was like, this is the time. So I was inspired by him in a life sense, but then also truly when I first moved to New York and I was working in Worldwide Plaza and he came to visit, he was like, you need to open a breakfast taco stand in Times Square. And I know I've always told that story, but that's literally what happened. I remember the moment I was on my landline with him at my desk, why I was calling my dad from my desk. I don't know, but (laughs) I was like, no, thanks. You know, he's like, I'll give you the capital. I'm like, I don't know what capital is hung up, but it just kind of stuck with me. I would toy around with business models when I was working and see how I could try to make it work before I would go to work because the idea of leaving my paying job for a non-paying one was too much to even consider. And it stayed with me. And then, yeah, 10 years in, I just made the jump. And what did the planning look like? Your business is incredibly dynamic. There are all of these different verticals. And I'm curious to know how many of these came out of that initial blueprint that you had created, architected, and how much of it just resulted from random opportunities over time? All of it was planned. All of it was part of the original blueprint. It was not like I didn't immediately know how I was going to get to this point. But I knew that there were three things I wanted to do and could do with breakfast tacos, I thought, successfully in New York. One was catering, which is how we started. Two was some semblance of retail. And three was the wholesale program that we have now. So everything we did was kind of born out of necessity. Like I didn't have capital starting this business. So I was doing catering because I would get paid for an order and I would use that money to produce that order. And it went like that for a while. But I guess to back up, like the planning to even get to the point of of selling our first breakfast taco, I had no background in food besides loving it, which obviously everyone does. Most people do. But I will say like, I was always very interested in what people were eating. One of those annoying things my dad used to do when I would get home from friends' houses, he would ask me what I ate. I'm like, why are you asking me? Like, leave me alone. But I'm the same way. Like, I'm interested in why people enjoy food and how they're enjoying it. So I loved food, no idea about the industry. I left advertising in November, formed my LLC in December, took like the food safety course from New York City, like in January, then started putting together recipes, starting to source my tortillas, like February, March. And then I quickly realized I had no experience in a kitchen. And it's also the same old story everyone hears in New York, like no one will hire you. I was like extremely overqualified technically, but not technically. I was like, like job experience wise overqualified. They're like, who is this insane woman trying to like apply to be a cook or dishwasher or reaching out to me? So no one would hire me, but I needed experience. And I crossed paths with one of the owners of The Meat Hook. And through a long and winding series, they decided to take me on as their intern at one of their pop-ups. And I think it was kind of like March till May. I worked for them and learned everything I could from like kind of tape they were using, what everything was called, like different tricks of the trade. 
just absorbed as much as I possibly could. At the same time, I developed my recipes with my mom. She came down or up one weekend and honed in on what I wanted to do for just basically the beans and the salsas and the potatoes because everything else is like just eggs, just tortillas, yada, yada. Found a commercial kitchen. I tested my recipes at scale, which obviously they've even changed since then, but got them to work somewhat. And then got married in early June and started making breakfast tacos in late June. (laughs) And that's how it happened. How did you market it initially? Especially catering is a difficult thing to break into because in almost every major market, they're just behemoths, right? Even if you did break out with breakfast tacos, the biggest caterers in the city could just start making breakfast tacos. Well, they were making such terrible ones that every, you know, it was like, and they also just felt everyone still is stuck in their ways of just making a sandwich because what we do is not easy. It looks easy, but it's not easy. And so the way I got into catering was I came from an industry that I knew catered breakfast and brought people lunch or breakfast once a week for staff meetings. We're trying to do things for clients to impress them. I was personally always stuck ordering bagels or danishes and everyone you know is starting to become pretty health conscious and that wasn't what people wanted so our first customers were in advertising and marketing and using my network there and got picked up pretty quickly and then i was very lucky to have an extended network of friends who with an instagram post got the attention of new york mag and they wrote a piece on us which i still like i'm so thankful for that because i'm like why were you writing about a catering company that made you order a hundred tacos at a time. (laughs) But that I think speaks to just how rare breakfast tacos were that that was newsworthy. And then after that, it was kind of like we just took off and people started ordering. It was all office catering. We were offering something that no one else was offering and doing it better than anyone else was doing. And then the initial branding strategy, how did you position it in a way that resonated? Because I was having this conversation with a friend last night and he goes, the trouble with being a pioneer is that pioneers get shot. (laughs) right yes and like it totally resonated with me because like it's breakfast tacos in new york great i'll be the second please yes (laughs) right and you see that a lot in this industry like someone has breakout success probably crawling over a hundred failed businesses to get there how did you explain the problem in the solution through branding in a way that resonated Yeah. I mean, I will say I didn't crawl over hundreds of dead bodies, but there were definitely people who did breakfast tacos before us, just not in the same way. Sure, No one was focused on grab and go like we were. So from a brand perspective, I mean, I always had the name. We did go back and forth on that because it sounds like we make kosher tacos depending on, I mean, some people get it immediately. And then some people are like, this will never work. But obviously, you know, it works, but it was definitely a question in the beginning. I think our brand is the same as our values as a business. There's no compromise. It's a very refined or cultivated brand in some respects. And in others, it's really unpretentious. I knew it had to be illustrated. It couldn't be super graphic, super modern, super clean. Like I banned the Dia de los Muertos skulls from any like area of our branding because that's like what everyone thinks Tex-Mex and Mexican food is. It needed to be somewhat Texan, but not overtly Texan. So, you know, the armadillo is kind of a nod to people who know it, but otherwise it just is cute. And it needed to be lighthearted. Like if we were a breakfast taco company, I think that took ourselves really seriously. You need a lot to love. First of all, the morning has got to all be about 
convenience, but also joy because it's you're starting your day like this. So you don't want some hardcore brand looking back at you, you know, the taco dillo with a crown. An armadillo made of a taco with a crown called King David just kind of all like got quirky enough and Austin enough without being like, hey, New York, don't you love Texas? Because by the way, New York doesn't love Texas. (laughs) It was all very kind of organic, yet at the same time, very calculated. And then you evolve the brand. You go from catering into these strategic partnerships where it's this mass distribution through strategic partnership, through other retail outlets. Talk to me about what it was like acquiring those initial strategic partners. So we did catering. That was really a test. That was just testing that I could do this. It was a great like ramp up. We did the carts after that because I needed to build the brand because I did think that the most efficient way to get the volume we needed was through the retail partnerships, but no one's going to care about a brand you've never heard of. So to get the kind of press that we needed, to get the kind of legitimacy that we needed, I had to have a retail presence, but traditional retail wasn't going to work financially. So we went the mobile route. So we kind of like evolved. There was the point after catering where I was like, okay, do I go retail or do I try to sell to coffee shops? It's like, I need to do this retail arm first because that will enable me to sell to coffee shops. So I did a, a year of, of boot camp and the carts, no, but like of the carts, building the brand, getting an actual review and things like that. I mean, that had to be terrible. The carts? Yes. I mean, speaking from personal experience, I've owned and operated a few places in every tier of dining. And then I also worked at a bunch of places on my way yeah. up through the industry. Yeah. And none of those places were a cart. And some of those places were really inhumane places to work. And so I can imagine that a cart would be nightmarish. <laughs> yes. Everyone thinks that you do a cart because it's like the easy way into the restaurant business. No. It is not easy. Like the rent is cheaper, but like, everything else is probably harder. It's like you're dealing with the same things, but on a moving restaurant and you're dealing with New York, the weather. And I built carts that you were standing outside because I'm insane. I don't know. I mean, that's the way I did it. I think a lot of things I did it the way I did it because it was needed for the strategy, but I question often if I could have made things easier on myself. (laughs) So yeah, it was hard. The cart was hard when I was working the carts. God bless the cart attendants who worked them for many years. But in the first couple of years, when I had myself like three to four shifts a week at the cart, I remember one specific day on Wall Street that the wind from the East River was just battering my face and the sleet was pelting me and I was smiling and I couldn't feel half my face, didn't know (laughs) if I was fully smiling, like giving a breakfast taco to someone in a bag. And I was like, this is hard. What did you learn from that? What did you learn from that experience? And not necessarily standing at the cart, but the cart operation, because, and I'm sure a bunch are listening now, caterers are not restaurateurs, period. It's just a very different operation. And once you pivoted into a cart, right, there's more immediacy because the customer is standing right in front of you. There are higher stakes in the transaction and there are more transactions happening. So the likelihood of there being a mistake or a misstep is much higher. What did you learn if we called that your first entree into becoming a true restaurateur? I mean, I learned that I really liked having a face to the customer. It's hard when you drop off catering and I would like have so much anxiety afterwards. And like, were the tacos okay? Could I look? I mean, there were a few times I did catering and I would be like everything I could to not open the tacos and make sure that they looked the same way they did when they left the kitchen. 
you're leaving so much to someone else. And it was nice to have that directness over the product and then over the customer interaction. I feel like the carts is what really endeared people to us. Everything is still grab and go. So it's a little bit different than even like going from catering to a brick and mortar. I feel like going, we thought that going to 611 Bergen to our brick and mortar, brick and mortar was going to be just like, hey, it's a cart, but not on wheels. No, it was totally different. (laughs) I don't know if I learned a specific kind of restaurant lesson with the carts. And also, I just feel like our mealtime is so different. It's all about fast convenience. I learned about the product a lot when I was out at the carts. I learned about how to hold it, how not to hold it, what kind of tacos hold better than others. I mean, it was more like kind of in the field testing, if that makes sense. And definitely the best part. I miss working the carts and I miss, my husband used to call me a cart magnet when we would like go back, when we go to the cart on the weekends, even if I wasn't working, because being able to just see the families, see the people at the cart was the best part of it. Because at some point people like, you know, my dad was my inspiration and that can keep you going for a little bit. But after that, there's got to be something else. (laughs) You know, it can't be forever like honoring my dad's legacy or that kind of life lesson. Obviously that's underlying, but the carts gave our customers a face, which was really important to keep me going. And a year in, did it accomplish the goal? Did you have enough brand awareness that you could go to coffee shops? Yes. Yeah. Did. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help you take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa, a network working for everyone. So, I mean, we got our first review from Eater from the carts. Thank God. It was uh, Robert Sietsema, which I think he's like an alum of UT. And it was his first positive Tex-Mex review. And like that helped us. I mean, the press... The press was very key to our success, obviously. So that kind of gave us a higher profile. We had a pretty big following. It's still our Prospect Park location has a very large following. We had started our retail partnership program or the strategic partnerships with a couple of businesses that are no longer around in a small way, but I had my eyes like set on one of the local chains here. And I reached out to them. They were aware of us and started the conversation. And it's still to date, like one of our most successful partnerships. So the folks that are tracking the conversation, we started out in catering and then we got into carts and then we also do wholesale. Before we get into the brick and mortar, I want to talk about these three verticals. Profitability is always a central focus in our industry. And everybody's looking for diversification of revenue. Everybody's looking for the highest possible margin. Before we even talk about the brick and mortar, because I'm pretty sure I know the answer there. Of the three that we've discussed thus far, which is the most profitable? I mean, we operate with 
technically contribution margins. So we're all looking at the different channels and how they're contributing to the overall profitability. The channel with the highest contribution margin is catering 100%. Although now, and this might be different than what you think about our brick and mortar, our brick and mortar retail has is kind of neck and neck with catering. And depending, we're expanding our hours there, which is maybe, I mean, I will need to explain that later based on some other answers I'll give, but it's, that's all just kind of gravy for us because it takes very little to service our retail and we already pay rent here to make the rest of our tacos. So yeah, I would think as a rule, like catering is the most profitable. And so as you're building brand awareness with the carts, with the brick and mortar, is that where you're looking to scale? Yeah. Let me give a caveat to that. Catering has the highest margins. If you have enough great catering relationships, profits are easily had, I would say. Nothing is easy. You shouldn't say easy. But the retail partnerships, I guess they might not have the highest margins, but that is the consistent revenue and the volume of revenue that also is really important for our profitability. So it's this classic, like you've got a few large caterings that are going to give you huge margins that are helpful. And then you've got a ton of the retail partnerships that give you smaller margins, but in that volume, in that scale, there is also profitability. You guys aren't cheap and you're not expensive either. You seem to found a really sweet spot in an era where costs continue to rise internally, when you guys have conversations about pricing as it relates to profitability, are there concerns and what's your plan of attack? Yes, there are 100% concerns. My controller would tell you he is always concerned. (laughs) I'm always concerned. I mean, the other night I literally woke up thinking about our bacon taco. And unfortunately, I think it's time to raise the price on that taco because we can't sustain that price point anymore with the price of bacon. So, I mean, yeah, it's a concern. I think we've always been, even for the breakfast taco market in New York, like you've got your $7 breakfast tacos of people who've done some like really artsy stuff. And then you've got your like people who are still doing a 2 to $3 breakfast taco and the ingredients are not the same level. We're somewhere in between at the 4 to 5 mark. I don't know. I used to be kind of apologetic about our pricing and we started at a 395 price point and we really haven't gone up for at 450 to 550. Now people have to decide if they want businesses to survive or not. <laughs> I guess, you know, like I have to raise prices. It's even hard for me to even get out of that mentality of like I'm breaking in, I'm trying to get people to try it, I need it to be the right price point. Most of our retail partners charge way more than we do for the tacos and nobody says anything. So there is a perception issue of where you're getting it, you know, and how much you can charge. But rising prices are a problem. And hopefully people's sentiments about how much they're willing to pay for food out of the house will change as well. Because at some point, we've got to cut it. We've got to make the call and just raise prices. Don't you feel like most of the conflict is internal? Internal to your business, internal to the industry? You have raised prices over the years. And I can't imagine there's been a ton of pushback where somebody throws the breakfast taco on the ground and says, this is insane. There was zero pushback. When we raised our prices the first time, I was like, ready for someone to do something. And no one cared. No one said anything. (laughs) They didn't say anything. And I was like, oh, my God, I should have just raised prices a long time ago because this is a business ultimately. And we got to make money. So it is, I think, a lot of, yeah, we're speaking to ourselves. I agree. I think. And I will say where you really get the price sensitivity is usually on Yelp and 
things like that, where people come and just complain about that. And I don't think it's a valid thing to review someone on, but that has an impact on your business too. So it's just like, yeah, it sucks because it's almost like, yeah, a lot of it is internal. Your real customers don't, I have one customer who's very adamant that he will not sign up for our loyalty program because he's like, it doesn't help you. The people who want your tacos will buy them anyway. So let's get into the brick and mortar because I think the fundamentals there are really interesting. How is it so profitable? How did you structure it for profitability? What is the engine that drives that whole ecosystem? The engine is our production kitchen. I mean, our brick and mortar is attached to our overall, this big 11,000 square foot facility we have. So it's like 300 square feet inside of that. One of the things when we were looking for space was I needed to be somewhere that there was enough foot traffic to make a brick and mortar make sense. And not so much that I was going to be paying inflated rent prices because of it. So it subsidizes our rent here. I mean, as long as you keep the labor that you need to service that space low, it works. Like even the delivery apps work well for us here because it's everything we do, no matter if you're seeing us in catering or the retail partners or at our own brick and mortar or the carts, it's all the same model. It's all produced in the same place, delivered the same way and just changes like whose hands are handing it to you. And I guess it's because it's no extra rent and all it is, is just an extra few hours from the retail attendance. So what does scaling look like? Because I mean, that's a great model locally, but I don't know how well it would scale regionally or nationally. Yeah. So scaling looks like continued retail partnerships. We have a good bit to go regionally off of this current facility. Definitely like our scaling is not based on our own retail brick and mortar. This is a great brand touch point. This is the heart of the business. I think strategically, we could have other brick and mortars that are distribution points for us. But scaling is locally providing, continuing to spread out and provide our retail partners a better breakfast solution, better grab and go breakfast. And then to go beyond that, whether that does look like production centers strategically located across the country, our big kind of, it's not a question mark, but the exploration for the next year or so is how to approach frozen. So I don't know that that's going to give us the same quality product to do the exact same thing that we're doing in New York and surrounding. That's what we need to kind of figure out. But even if it's that we're not expanding via retail partnerships throughout the country, you don't necessarily get us in a Starbucks in California. There could be an option for getting KDT in California that looks different. It would be in your grocery aisle. Sustainability has played a central role in the creation and the cultivation of your brand over time. How much of that transferred to the brick and mortar location? I would say for this question, I don't know. Sustainability is something that was part of our approach with Blank Street for the carts. I don't know that I could say that we are where we'd want to be sustainability wise with the rest of the business, only because of like packaging. I think where we are sustainable is that everything is very lean, very focused. We don't create a lot of time waste. We don't create a lot of waste waste. We're very in and out. The brick and mortar doesn't produce a lot of trash, doesn't take up a lot of room. You have a nice big outdoor space to sit down, have your breakfast. I mean, everything, breakfast is a less indulgent mealtime. Breakfast and even like kind of late lunch, brunch in this kind of food. So I think just naturally we're like leaner than a regular restaurant would be. So that would 
probably be the way that it ties in um, to the brick and mortar. Also, we're all about making use of what we already have. So like the brick and mortar is like where we have this huge production kitchen. Like, why would I not sell tacos out of it? A through line from the start of the conversation to this moment in my mind has been excellence in manufacturing, which isn't really a central focus for most restaurateurs, right? Like it's about the quality of the product that is manufactured and far less about the process involved. And I mean, I've been in every tier of dining and never have we talked about how to make this process more efficient. It's always about how do we improve the quality of the product? Am I wrong? Is that not a central focus throughout? It is, yeah, 100% excellence in manufacturing and excellence in a very functional product. I always was very anti-Instagram food porn. Like our tacos don't look like the burritos that you see cut in half with millions of shrimp coming out. You know, it's like excellence, I think, is definitely core to our ethos and to our goals to be very, very good at just a very specific (laughs) part of the world. There's a lot of value in that, though. I think that too many of us spread ourselves too thin, wanting to be great at so many things. And I think that as an outsider, which you most certainly were coming into the industry and choosing to niche down, not only did you secure yourself an audience, but you also secured yourself profitability through having this maniacal focus on getting really, really good at doing one thing. Yeah, 100%. And that was really hard to stay that focused. There were times that we toyed around with like having a cart at the beach, but you can sell tacos at the beach. It's just not our audience. We are focused on routine, focused on morning, focused on repeat. And that's not what the beach is about. Doing pop-ups, expecting to actually sell tacos, like did not really ever work out. We are ingrained into people's lives and mornings, and that's just not where we shine. So learning about ourselves in that process and saying, no, this is what we're about. This is what we're going to stay focused on. And like, is that a maniacal focus on just one thing? It's like we kind of bounced around and kept ourselves on the straight and narrow. It's very tempting to try to attack the rest of Tex-Mex to do dinner. It's like, you know, I had these leases on Wall Street in Madison Square Park. It's like any other restaurateur is like, or not restaurateur, but even like cart person. They're like, why aren't you like trying to do salads and bowls and stuff later? It's like, because then I would get really bad at breakfast tacos. (laughs) And yeah, so... Striving for excellence by remaining focused has definitely been a challenge and our goal throughout all this. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests the opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Yeah, I mean, I thought about this one. It's interesting because as an industry outsider, I always get a little insecure when talking to the rest of the industry. You know, it's like I'm like a non-chef who yet built my own food business and recipes and what do I know? But I think as an outsider, one of the things is I came into the industry with different expectations of how to operate and how to treat people and how to be and what to expect from others, I think. And one of the hardest things I've had to do is no matter what I've encountered or how many times I've been let down or seen something crazy happen or had the residual effects of someone else's experience in the industry impact how they interact with me. I guess my advice would be (laughs) to not lose the ability to empathize and to expect better from other people, because there is a lot of talk about changing the way the industry operates and 
and expectations and how people treat people and pay and all these things. But it really comes down to empathy and feeling for your fellow workers and employees and things. And I think a lot of times I see people just not treating others like they would want to be treated because that's the way it's done. And the cycle has to stop with each individual. So my advice is to chin up no matter how many times you get beat down. Don't lose your faith in the people around you. That's Liz Solomon. For more on King David Tacos, go to kingdavidtacos.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.